this is my really my first time walking through teaching this the way I would like to kind of teach it. So I think going from I think there's like 42 pages here. I probably have another 20 pages. So we'll probably the whole thing probably needs to be about 30 pages. So you guys are just getting a little extra. So I'm not going over everything. Um, that's kind of helpful just to have some of the notes. And I left. I mentioned this way in the beginning. I left all the footnotes because. One, just integrity it references where this information comes from, but also gives you additional definitions and other things you can you can look at. So that's kind of where where that is. If you have not been here from the beginning, we start out by but basically um, one is kind of given the context of, of my desire to establish uh, missions in a healthy biblical context and kind of my my own history of what brought me to this desire to to hit at these questions that seem um, always. There, there are some very difficult, challenging questions around missions, and I wanted to tackle those head on. But before we do that, we had to really walk through and give biblical parameters to this. And so my desire in this is really start out as we did already a couple weeks a couple weeks ago, is start out with the – when we talk about the exclusive nature of the church, is understanding what is a church exclusively designed to do in the area of missions. And once you establish that – going all the way down to what here's the biblical parameters we're going to work with then then you present the problems and you ask yourself okay how can I how can I work within the biblical parameters and biblical context understanding that I trust the word to be true uh, I trust these parameters because they're biblical now how can I work within those parameters and and uh, and, and then from there try to solve the the difficult questions there there's a lot of ambiguity in the area of missions and I can't say that we'll we'll answer all of those obviously but I really want to be able to walk through the missional landscape and, and, and do so in a way that helps me. First and foremost, you know, there could be just five people here. That'd be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm learning as I walk through this information, and it's helpful for me. And so I've, I've enjoyed it even from, from that perspective. But it's really it's not a, a study for one class. It's really a, a lifelong uh, study and desire to reconcile everything that I've seen in missions and heard in missions and learned in missions and how do we really – shape this in one coherent way that's biblically framed and then how do you as a church have a ministry that flows flows from that so in walking through the exclusive nature of the church we obviously talked about first and foremost the exclusive nature of god and how everything flows from his revelation and from there through the apostle to the prophecy apostle then you, you arrive at the church so the church is that all of a sudden there's a wide open concept it's it flows from an exclusive god with a specific revelation, a specific purpose, and the church inherits that. We're going to see some of that today. The, the chapter today, after we look at some of the, the last parts in, in, your, in your notes on page 9, so you've gotten pages 17 through 42 tonight, but uh, we're, we're around page 9. What, what brings resistance to, to the church playing the role that it's called to do and answering some of that? And as we get more into weeds, as we'll get more into addressing specific missional questions, and knowing, okay, well, how, okay, how do we answer this question in light of what we know about the Word of God? How do we answer these questions, and how can we have a have a healthy, um, even as a church, a healthy mission approach, uh, knowing these things? So, page nine, I wrote down three three areas that I see come back on a regular basis that really drive what I call resistance to to a biblical model or a local church model for, for missions. We spent a lot of time last time talking about the local church, about why the church is, is understood as a, as a visible church, 
uh, not a, a mystical gathering, but a, a, a visible gathering. And how from there, how do we function from there? Because if you, if you put forth the idea that the church is primarily a, a universal church or an invisible church, then from there you, you get a very, uh, very loose understanding of what the church is called to do. So there's no, there's no clear understanding what we're called to do because we're just part of a bigger mass. And within that mass, you know, everybody can kind of do what's right in their own eyes. No, the, Peter understood the church to be a visible gathering, and we see that when he's called to shepherd the flock, uh, and, and we see that develop in the book of Acts as well. So three, three areas of, that I find consistently at odds with missions and often put forth as uh, the church, yes, but, and here's, here's how they frame some of this stuff. One area, I put down pragmatism, uh, experience and individualism. Those are the three areas that I that I put out there as I often being faced with when it comes to to resistance to the, the role of the local church and missions. Meaning what you'll have is well yes, everyone will systematically say, of course the church is central to missions. Yes, it's even vital to missions. The reason why I use the term exclusive is because you can't get around the term exclusive. You know, so people say, Oh yeah, it's vital. That means it's important. Yeah, it's central. Yeah, it's it's Exclusive, and I mentioned this way in the beginning, when I started writing on this and started writing using the term exclusive, it, it made people feel uncomfortable because as soon as you write the word exclusive, you can't get around it. So that, that made people feel uncomfortable. And so a lot of what you face is, is, is identified in these three areas. So what's – I define pragmatism here uh, right in the beginning, uh, page 9. Resistance comes in form of pragmatism, which is defined as the attitude of looking away from the first things – principles and supposed necessities and of looking towards the last things fruits consequences and facts i wrote down a little bit later it's a it's a reliance on what appears to work and be effective so let me ask you the first question here you know how how does this impact missions if you're going to take if you're going to lead and and have the weight of pragmatism some of these questions are legitimate what works well what works you know if you're if you're in a place and you're in ministry and you know, after 20 years in one place, you have no one ever, you know, it's still you and your wife staring at each other on Sunday morning because you haven't got anything going. Yes, there should be some questions, you know, what are you doing, what's going on, obviously. But what are the problems, how, how would pragmatism impact missions? All right, you're going straight to results. So you're going to circumvent other things, and that's why you have to be really convictional about where the church has to play that role. Because otherwise you're going to be, yeah, what's, what brings results? Uh, I think we could, it's, it's clear to say that we can look at ministries today and results in and of themselves are not always indicative of something that is true or, or right or good. And even if someone that has good intentions has good results, it doesn't mean he necessarily went about it the right way. It doesn't mean justifies his methodology in the process. It means God, in his mercy and grace, is going to fulfill his purposes, even in the heart of an unrighteous person, even in someone who has good intentions and not doing it. You know, God, um, I told this, Jane and I said this about our ministry many years, you know, many times. God blesses in spite of us, not because we were just these wonderful people who did great jobs at everything. You know, same thing with parenting. My kids are not in here, right? They always, they always say, you talk about us, Dad. Don't talk about us. I get that. But... It's not like we had this, this miracle 
you know, uh, solutions for our children, boy, God, in spite of what we did, uh, bless. Sorry, don't mark. I saw you there. I, you there. I was looking for the girls. They're the ones that usually are the ones that uh, more senses that. John Mark doesn't care. Mark, I did take note on that. He, t- he took advantage of MIT to ask John Mark how and the girls how were they spanked at the house. I got that, y'all. Taking notes on spanking. Um, I just to get some dirt on you. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah. So pragmatism leads you to this this desire for what are the results. But it's a very it's very deceptive to try to to use results as a means to justify uh, what works or doesn't work, what God blesses, what God doesn't bless. Experience comes out in the, in the same way. And this is this is one where while I've run into this over and if I if I mention these here is because I run into them over and over and over and over. You you want to address a a dysfunctional ministry or like well Wow, this over here, I wish I could see this in this ministry. Oh, yes, but. But God's been blessing. Have you, I mean, I've been reading the prayer letters, right? The prayer letters, wow, 10,000 souls have been coming to the Lord in the last 10 years. I mean, surely 10,000 souls can't come to know the Lord and he's not doing it right. Well, God in his mercy and grace fulfills his purposes. It doesn't necessarily equate with him doing it right, or it doesn't mean that the church necessarily um, should be a part of that and is not. So sometimes it's a very deceptive way and very dangerous to try to equate either pragmatism, results, or experience. Uh, many, many times I hear people say, well, I've, I saw so-and-so happen, and boy, that was really fantastic. So they, they lead with experience. All of a sudden, you can have all the biblical parameters, but boy, you press that button of experience and that feeling of experience. And that's why the first time we talked about missions here, I, I, some of you were, were not here, but we talked about the fact that it's a very sensitive subject in churches. I mean, you could come as a pastor into a church and you could preach the gospel, and no one's going to get rattled by it if you're preaching the gospel and they enjoy their good preaching and everything. And I was telling, telling Fred, we had a little church this morning. We went out in Appomattox for second service and encouraged a little church. And this little church, and they're like, just preach Jesus, and they're happy, right? But you walk into missions and you start saying, well, what's Billy Joel doing? Oh, Billy. Billy's a good man. I've known Billy for 20 years. He's been in my home. When he comes to the States, I eat in my house. He's been in night with us, and we love that man. Now I try to touch him. Now I try to say, well, you know, I, I get that, but you know he's uh, selling youth clothing to African kids, and he's not really doing – oh, but he's a good man. I mean, it's like all of a sudden you're touching this someone's child. You ever try to correct someone's child to see the parent's reaction, how that works for you? Well, it's kind of that way with, with missions. You're touching their child. And they've had that prayer card in that fridge for the last 10 years, and you're not going to suggest that somehow what they're doing should be done differently. And so that gets super, uh, very, 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 uh, very sensitive. So he, I wrote down a few things here just as a reminder. Um, experience is, I put down, offers experience as the final court of appeal of what is determined to be good and, and true. Many believers fail to see the beauty of the church because, in their view, the body is tainted by their own experiences. One reason why people don't, don't, go towards a church because well the church I tried that and you know they weren't responsive they wouldn't support our ministry or they weren't interested in missions or they weren't they weren't about evangelism like I am of course I was really you know and it's they they have this negative perception of, of, of the church so somehow that justifies functioning outside the church for me it's kind of like well that's kind of like saying you know I really I mentioned to last week discussing this uh, after the class it's kind of like saying 
yeah, I want intimacy, but I really, marriage doesn't really work for me. My parents divorced, so I'm going to try that outside of marriage. No, but somehow the church, we could think, well, you know, I had a bad experience with the church, and those people, they weren't very loving, so they're holding us back, and so we're going to function outside the church. Under what, under what authority do we do that? Under what biblical parameters do we do that? So we, we start um, using experience as, as a tool, but down here in, in, in your notes, and again, I'm flying through. I say I fly through. I kind of skip through the notes, but you could read through this. Uh, Norman Geiser wrote, No religious experience as such is either understandable or justifiable apart from some truth framework, independent or separate from the experience itself. You cannot validate someone's experience outside of a truth framework. That truth framework is the Word of God. So I have to take someone's experience and validate it through a separate objective framework, which is God's Word. You should do that for your life. Uh, just because someone cheated on their taxes, got away with it, doesn't mean that's a good idea. Uh, or you know, I haven't been tithing for ten years, and God hasn't robbed, you know God hasn't hasn't hurt me. I mean, people think in very dysfunctional ways, and missions is, is a, prime, a prime target for that. And then individualism. Wow, I think that goes very well with, with this day and age, individualism. Individualism hurts the believer in, in, different, in different ways. One, of course, is we'll see, uh, not today, but a little bit later on, the, the calling to ministry. I'm, I'm called to ministry, so it's this individual call. Uh, we live in a very individualistic culture, uh, and is very present in, in the missional mindset. I mean, and through individualism, I wouldn't want any one person or any one institution or any, any church holding me back from what my heart's desire is, what God's, we don't say it that way, we say what God's laid on my heart. Whatever God's laid on my heart, well, no one should hold you back from that, right? I mean, you shouldn't have to answer to mere mortals for what God's laid on your heart. So, we, we approach it with this, you know, this individual um, calling. Um, I put down page, we're still on page 9, I believe it is. It says, this is certainly true in missions where the values of individualism, individualism are personal achievement, fulfillment, independence, freedom of choice, personal responsibility. Other cultures, more collectivist in nature, value harmony and communal success. So... We, we see this individual, individualistic culture in church where we want, to, we want the church to validate. We don't want to submit to a church. We want the church to validate our calling or our individual desires. And they, we want the church to affirm our desires, to affirm what God's doing. Instead of submitting ourselves to a body and letting that body affirm us and let them approve us and test our motives and test what motivates us, and instead of doing that, we, we, want to, we, we flip it upside down and individualism is in the driver's seat, and we want the church to, to affirm our individualism, and that's obviously not what the church is is designed to do. Right there in the middle of that paragraph, I put down, Paul speaks of the individual dwelling of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He says, your body is a temple. We know that very well. But he also speaks of it collectively in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, do you not know that you're that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God. Here he uses second-person per plural. So he's, talk, he's talking to the church collectively. And he, in speaking, he, sees, he says that individually in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He also says it collectively in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, do you not know, talking to the church collectively. That's significant. He's talking to the church collectively. Do you not know as a church that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So um, important to 
to shape and to submit, and that's very difficult for us. It's, it's ingrained in our culture. I mean, the life, you know, pursuit of happiness is, is in our culture. That's individual pursuit is in our culture. So it's very difficult for a younger generation, or not even just younger generation, but any generation really, to say, you know, I'm going to, to allow the church as a body to, to affirm and to shape us and to prepare us for uh, the ministry. Of course, the way, it come, the way it comes about in reality is that you, you sit down with men that love you, that love the Lord, and want the, the best for you, and they want to glorify and honor the Lord and help you prove that and test that. What usually is the case in the, in the young person's lives is they're, they're impatient, right? They think they're ready. They want to go and charge the hill, and they want to go and fight the battle. And, and uh, you have men around say, hey, let's, you, know, let's be, you need to be mentored a little bit longer. Let's get these things figured out first. Let's just get this fixed out first and get that, get that ready. So put down four missional criteria. Four missional criteria to end the section right here. Um, one, we should seek missions that focuses on faithfulness. It's uh, part of what Tim was talking about this morning as well uh, in his morning message. Focuses on faithfulness. Seeks first and foremost to glorify God. Has and what, what glorifies God is when His Word is proclaimed and His Word is honored. That's what glorifies the Lord. The Lord is not impressed with our results. He's not impressed with our fruit. He's not impressed with our buildings. He's not impressed with anything but his name being glorified and lifted up. So when truth is magnified, when truth is honored and and proclaimed rightfully so, then he is glorified. Then we should seek practices most consistent with Scripture and then seek missions that relies on the power and promises of God to bring about success. So that last one there, why? You, you rely on the power and promise of God to bring about success, which means you're convictional about here. Here is a biblical framework of, that this ministry needs to have, and I'm going to trust the Lord to make that. He's going to bring success within that framework. Uh, I've seen people many, many times in, in missions fall through pragmatism. Well, we couldn't find this. You know, we couldn't do, you know, share this way in the beginning, but, you know, we went to, we went to China once to teach on a um, class on church planning. 50, 50 people there. We were in an underground church. We did the wear the hoodie to get to the building so no one could see you because you don't want any Americans, you know, teaching and training, that kind of stuff. And you get there, and 55 people, I think there were maybe 10 men. 10 men were there for a church planning class. And, you know, all these ladies. Who's planning churches? Ladies. Yeah, I plan churches. I plan two churches. Who's planning three churches? I plan three churches. I plan four churches. Everybody's all excited. I worked up and thinking, am I, is it just me or something? <laughs> not clicking right here. Like, what am I missing here? Um... But then you talk to the leaders, well, you know, we just can't find men. So I'm thinking, okay, here are biblical parameters. Are we suggesting that God's incapable here to find men for his ministry and we're going to have to find other ways to make it work? I mean, how are we processing this? And that will come – these things I'm suggesting to you about the missional work are mainstream problems. These are not extreme problems. These are mainstream problems. You know, if you were to talk about missions, and the, these are not like, oh, these are the, 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 the extreme examples and cases. No, these are the mainstream examples and the mainstream problems that we have in missions is that we have to go in there thinking I'm going to have to help God do things well because clearly without, without, God, without my help, I'm going to, you know, things are not going to get done. And we can't, we can't look at the biblical parameters and say I'm going to trust God within those parameters 
Because then what we don't see is when we don't respect those parameters, how things can quickly, quickly fall apart. So, chapter 2. Chapter 2, the church as pillar and proclaimer of, of truth. I would, I would say this is probably the, the, the chapter that to me, when you walk away from this chapter here, you, you just see, for me, it's like there's no way the church cannot be central to how missions should function because the church is clearly defined as the one that's been entrusted with the deposit of truth. You, the body of Christ. And when you look at it in chapter 2, as you unpack it, you'll see every facet of how we as a body of Christ have been entrusted with truth to guard the truth, to proclaim the truth, to defend the truth. And we see even the church ordinances, how everything is designed to do that. So what, what happens, of course, the missional drift that comes on the end of the section is what? The missional drift comes from we, we withdraw from the church as being the pillar of truth, and we think that we can exempt ourselves from that and we're not going to drift away from truth. No. The church is designed to be that anchor and that pillar of truth. So if you drift away from that, yes, you will drift away in, in a number of ways, and that's the, the second part of, of this chapter. I think today we're supposed to be dangerous of missional drift. We should, we should get there. We'll try to get there either way. So let's, let's work towards that end, and again, uh, I've underlined a few things that I'm going to, to, to look at with you and then, and then um, let you read the rest at your leisure. So, introduction part of chapter 2. So God's exclusive revelation, passed down from the prophets to Christ to the apostles, now finds itself entrusted to the church. That, this, this is you, the body of Christ, the visible body of Christ. This is not the, this is not the, the nebulous church out there. This is entrusted to you as a body of Christ. This is, this is significant for us as a body of Christ. To take that responsibility seriously, it should, it, should also, it, it should also encourage us to what? We need to be trained. We need to be formed. We need to be aware. We need to be in the Word because we, you've been given this deposit, and you should uh, care for that and then, of course, proclaim it, obviously, as well. This chapter will demonstrate that the local church, as recipient of this deposit, is uniquely tasked with and designed to guard, to protect, to defend and to proclaim the truth entrusted to its care. As such, missional endeavors need to give special deference to the role of the church in theological matters, with the understanding that the church is called to be the steward of truth. Again, this is mainstream problems. What do I mean? What do I mean by mainstream problems? I mean this is not this is not extreme problems. These are mainstream issues with where does the church fit in defending truth. Not just because it's not the church trying to claim a stake of, of authority in something. It's not like we're a similarly bad church is trying to exert some kind of authority over something. No, but we've been entrusted with the truth. I'll give you an example of how this plays out. We were sending someone to go teach in, in a certain area, and the person uh, in charge of the agency where they're going to come, they said, well, we, you know, they could come and everything. We're excited to have you guys, and I know he's going to be teaching on First Corinthians, but we, do, we don't really want – we're asking you not, not to really – don't really get into the tongues issue. I said, well, it's going to be kind of hard. You're going to 1 Corinthians. You're going to hit chapter 13 pretty quickly, and then chapter 14, and the gifts are chapter 12, and the body, and, well, you understand, you know, here, we're not, we're, not, we're not picky with theology. I know you guys are a little, you know, you're a little more narrow, we're, but we're not picky with theology. So when he comes and teaches, we're asking him to, don't, don't, don't be too hard and don't, don't really address strongly these, these gifting issues. Why did they do that? And I don't, 
I don't fault the agency for doing it. The reason why the agency does that is because they're not the church. And because they're not the church, they don't care about theology the way the church does. Because that's not, that's not what they've been entrusted with. So for them, they, they see the, the church as very restricting theology. Oh, you're, you're too narrow. Well, the reality is it's because the church is uniquely equipped and designed to teach truth, proclaim truth, and, and they're not. So, of course, for them, it's like, well, let's, as long as we agree with the core things. What's the core things? Love Jesus? I mean, you know, what's, what's the gospel? So as long as we agree with the essential things. So, of course, naturally, you can get into the weeds of what is primary, what's secondary. There's some legitimate questions about that. But when you're telling someone who's going to come and teach and you tell them, skip over chapter 13 and don't talk about the gift of tongues, you're, you're, you're being a little more – it's more than just – uh, be true to the text, let them teach. And I told them, I said, if, if we're going to send anybody to teach, they're going to teach the word the way it is. There's no way, I told that person that runs the agency, there's no way we're going to put a, a bridle on, uh, um, on, a, on a teacher and tell them, uh, you, you could teach, but you, you can't go down here. They're going to teach the word and they're going to you know, uh, be true to the word. So they allowed it to happen, but I'm saying that is very common because uh, missions has different emphasis and they don't have the same sensitivity that the church is designed to have so quickly no no point taking a lot of time here on, on the first part but i build the purpose of the church one and describing it page 11 page 11 number one which says the household of god the household of god so there's one text i most of your your references are there you don't really need necessarily to turn there but i'm gonna to read that passage where the church is pictured as the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and, and the prophets. So I'm looking at uh, number one page on your page 11. Significance of the, of the picture of a household, and then from there we look at the apostolic mission that's been given to the church, and then how, how Paul is, is transferring that to the elders of the church. We see that progression uh, in, in the New Testament. But... The key, the key text, no doubt, for us is, is going to be in, in 1 Timothy. So given that I'm going to reference it quite a bit, if you go to 1 Timothy and you see Paul's greetings, the context is, is well known to be that of, of um, the role of men and women in the church, qualifications for overseers in chapter 3, qualifications of deacons. So he, he sits there and describes within the body of Christ, here's how you structure the church, here, hey, you establish things for, for there to be order, for there to be teaching. Here are the guidelines. Here, he structure within the body. Uh, and then he says in verse, uh, verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So of course, there we're talking about uh, very in a very practical way, right? How do you conduct yourself in the house of God? I'm not talking about how you live with the believers in a broad sense, but in a very literal sense. And it goes, which is what? The house of God is what? The church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of, of godliness. He, he, he describes his purpose here to, to Timothy in saying the church, here, here's how you conduct yourself in the church. Here's how you establish elders. Here's how you establish deacons who serve the church. Here's the parameters, how men and women interact in the church. Why? Because the church is the household of God, and that household of God is the pillar and ground or buttress for some of the texts of, of the truth. I tell you, 
I spent a lot of time kind of unpacking that, but ultimately it's understanding that we as a body of Christ and you and I, this church is pillar of truth. It's, it, the reason why we walk through the necessity of a visible gathering is to understand when you come to this, it's not a concept that is, oh, well, the church at large. We as the, as the, the body of Christ as a whole as a pillar of truth. No, he's clearly structuring within a gathering within the household how they should conduct themselves because of that responsibility and taking that responsibility to task. So um, I put down in, in your notes here, again, uh, the, the picture of the household of God. Um, second, I'm looking at my paragraphs, maybe a little bit different than yours. It says, um, to, understand, to understand rather what is expected of the gathering of believers, Scripture pictures the church as the household of God. This household, which Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2.19, is, according to Peter, made of living stones or disciples. So you walk through these different texts. Paul takes it a step further in 1 Corinthians 3.9, declaring believers to be corporately God's building. And then Paul adopts this imagery as he instructs the church at Ephesus through Timothy on how it ought to behave within the household, knowing that it is the church of the living God. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things as we just read in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. Now, as I walked through my notes, I took out a lot of stuff. But as I read it, I'm thinking, well, I should leave that. No, I should leave that. No, I should leave that. So I'll keep rewriting it. And I, again, I'll condense at some point down to a mere 30 or 40 pages. But um, every time I keep rereading through this, I don't know, should I leave that there? And so, again, you've got, you've got more to, to digest here. Interesting to see this, though. First of all, the picture of the household of God as to that's who we are, and the instructions He gives them here is how we should behave in this household, how it's structured, how it should be in order. First of all, as a household, number two up and down, we have the apostolic mission. The church is not only recipient of truth; it is also recipient of the apostolic mission. The church's foundation, the apostolic foundation that we have, is seen in its ongoing apostolic nature, which means we've been giving uh, that thrust as a church. And we've been given not only the truth to hold, to guard, but we've been given the mission. We're in continuation with the apostles' mission. We've been given that apostolic mission of going to the other parts of the earth and proclaiming, proclaiming the gospel. The church is that instrument to spread the gospel. As the apostles were before Pentecost, the church becomes that after Pentecost. So when we envision the apostles, the responsibility, we understand that we see that they were gifted with the, uh, they were given the ability to uh, do miracles. We saw how they proclaimed. We understand how the gospel spread. We see that through the book of Acts. But in Acts 2, when the church now comes, arrives on the scene, that apostolic mission is handed over to the church. We have that apostolic mission given to us. That's it's an exciting task that's given to us. You know, we're not we're not been given to just digest on, on on truth and sit here. We've been given that same truth, that same truth to guard, to, and and then to to continue on with that mission. Number three, up and down, that you, you should be on page twelve. The post apostolic mission. Number three on page twelve, but down Paul is preparing now the church for the post apostolic period where he'll see the emergence of local congregations led by elders and served by deacons, the church is now pictured here as a household, a pillar, and buttress, which means, okay, you go from the apostolic mission that's, that's given over to the, to the church, and now Paul is doing what? Here in First Timothy, he's preparing the church to take on that responsibility. So we don't have apostles in the 12 apostle model. We have small apostles that are... In, uh, We'll, we'll discuss the definition of that a little bit, our sent ones, and we'll see that picture uh, used in Scripture. 
But what Paul is doing is he's preparing the church through elders and deacons to take on that task and to take on that responsibility. So, and, and with that comes the, the duty that's given to us. I put down one, one quote at the end from John Calvin. He says, It is not ordinary dignity that is ascribed to the church when it is called the pillar and ground of the truth. For what higher terms could he have used to, to describe it? So as we see the church being a recipient of the mission, being now uh, through Paul given that task and equipping the church to carry on that task, and then number four, the evangelistic mission that's given to the church. Uh, we see this in this text in First Timothy, right? It says it's worth observing here that the context of our text in 1 Timothy 2 is evangelistic in nature. Look at um, chapter 2. But now the context, we're still in 1 Timothy. Uh, I'm on number 4. Uh, I know I'm skipping through here, so you've got to keep up with me here. But uh, on number 4, evangelistic, evangelistic mission. The purpose for Paul to address behavior within the house of God is evangelistic in nature. The context for instruction regarding the household of God in 1 Timothy is to present that which is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires what? That all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Which means we, we've been given the apostolic mission. We've been, Paul transfers that over to the church. He equips the church for it. And the purpose of that is what? Is evangelistic in, in, in nature so that we can carry that great commission on to, to the rest and to the ends of the earth. So, B, truth entrusted, the passing of the torch. Uh, the few things here today, I mean, I would like to be able to get, try and see. I really want to get to the drifting, but the drifting is a few pages away. Page 21. I don't know if I get 17 pages in, in five minutes or not. But, um, no, what, what you're trying to do, and... What I want to do here in a in a equipping class setting, I got twelve minutes. I got fifteen minutes. What I want to do in an equipping class setting is walk through things in a systematic way. I mean, you know, I I could do all this in, in, in one sermon if you wanted to, but I'm trying to. I want to work through things in a systematic way to we're building on principles so that we walk away with a foundation that we understand at the end of it. When there's, a pra- when there's a pragmatic side of things, when over here you're trying to figure out well, what, what's, a, what's a healthy missionary and, and paramissional organization look like, well, you had the foundation to build on, and that's why I'm getting in the weeds of some of this just to get, kind of give us that, that foundational piece. So, B, truth that is entrusted to the church. Now, understanding the place of the church in the continuum of revelation is a prerequisite to understanding what is expected of the church. In other words, as you understand the church, the flow of the church, how it's recipient, how it flows through the revelation, how it flows from the exclusive nature of God all the way through his, his exclusive church is, is important if we're going to understand what's expected of us. I mean, what is expected of the church? What is expected of you? Is it just to learn and grow in, in, in sanctification and get better and better and grow towards perfection? I mean... Some like Fred have already arrived. What are you going to do with the rest of his life? He's already, he's already there. Uh, how, how do you, what's expected of us? And you understand that, that torch being passed on, you understand the responsibility, the task that's been entrusted to you. One sees here in our text the passing of the torch in the words of Paul to Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. It's in your notes here. I love the, the, I, I love the, the beauty, the imagery that 
Paul works through with Timothy. And this, Timothy is indicative of the church. He's not, it's not one man passing it on to another man. It's one apostle passing it on to the church. So that's, that's the image that's given to us here. That, and so you're, you're part of that. You're recipient of that. So in 1 Timothy 6, he says what? Verse 20, O Timothy, he says what? Guard the deposit and trust it to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from, from the faith. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, is fi- Paul's final letter as we know it to be, we see this charge is repeated. Follow the pattern in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He says, what? Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love of that are in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So he repeats that in his final exhortation, final admonition to, to Timothy. We see Paul give the same admonition to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. It says, Hold firm to the trustworthy word as it was taught and rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, Titus is told to take ownership and responsibility for this deposit. In other words, here's the deposit, now take responsibility for it, protect it, guard it, defend it. He says again to Jude. Uh, Jude, we see where uh, in Jude chapter 3, Jude 3 rather, uh, calls on believers to fight for the faith. He's appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. As the church grows in its understanding of the truth that has been delivered to it, it can accurately grasp what it is expected to do. So the first thing I... The first thing I see, as I, as I walk through this, here's, here's the conviction I walk away from. We see Paul's admonition to Timothy. Timothy, as, uh, as a representative of the church, that's the context. So he's given this to the church. He said, guard it. He says that to um, Titus. He says that to, to Jude. What? Guard, protect, defend. That is our task. That is your task. So when I read that, I think, well, it behooves me to know the word to be in the Word, to live lives that are uh, um, congruent with the Word, to love the Word. I mean, that, that is your responsibility as the body of Christ. Now, as you walk through this, you're thinking, that, well, how can missions be separate from the church? It's our job. It's our task. Now, there are logistical questions. There are questions we'll deal with a little bit later. But at the core, at the heart of it, the church is been... This has been given to him here. It's yours. Now defend it. I can't pass that on to somebody else. Say, well, listen, I want to do the, we want to be involved in the Great Commission, and we want, we want a big board in the back of our church with all these little lights, and then we're going to light up the world. The sun will never set in our ministry 24-7. All those things are wonderful, but then what do we do? So we pass that on to somebody else, and we hope that this agency or that person or that agency will take care of it. We'll, just, we'll send a check, and we'll have you on a prayer list and, and bless God. And It can't, it can't be that. It can't. That's, that, that falls so short of, of the admonition that Paul gives to Timothy. It falls so short of that. We cannot give that away. You cannot pass it on to somebody else. And institutions as, and organizations, as, as godly as they are, with, with godly people and, and, and good believers, and they, they cannot take on what's not been given to them. You can't give that away. I can't give that away. So no, no matter what we do in missions from there on out, if, if I've got the responsibility of, of sending someone, so like going back to the example I gave you a minute ago, right? When I, when I send that 
teacher to this other country to teach, I have the responsibility to make sure, one, that he's a qualified teacher. Is he going to teach the truth? Is he qualified to teach? That's my responsibility. I'm the church. We're, you know, we're the church. We're the body of Christ. So is he qualified to teach? And then on the other end, is he free to teach? I'm not going to send somebody somewhere where they're not free to teach. That would be, that would be compromising the truth. No, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I, that that's, my, that's my parameters. So why? Because as I, as I read through this, I read Paul's admonition. I, I, I take it and in doing so realize I cannot, I cannot walk away from that. You and I cannot walk away from that. And a little bit, in just a few minutes here, we'll see how God's designed the church to do that. That's the beauty of it. He's designed the church to do that. He gave the instructions here, and all through Scripture we see how he gave instructions for that to happen. And that's, that's the beauty of it, is he designed the church in a unique way to do exactly that, defend, uphold, and proclaim the truth. So, let me look at page, let me see, I got page 14, I believe, where it says, how is truth preserved? How is truth preserved? And as I, as I walk through this, what I look at here is how is the church uniquely, how would you answer that question before I even go a little bit further? How is the church uniquely designed? Okay, we understand, we see the admonition, we see the instruction given to them. Okay, but how is the church uniquely designed to guard the truth? Anybody have any thoughts on that? It's made up of believers. Sorry? It's made up of believers. All the word of God. Okay, it's made up of believers. Through, through its organization. Through its structure. Right. Through its organization. The plurality of elders who will keep each other in check from becoming. Plurality of elders who keep each other accountable. Elder model is so essential. It's so much more important than what we imagine to be white. Because that, that accountability structure is what's modeled for the church. That's why it's so vital. That's why it's so biblical. I mean, God, interestingly enough, he knew what he was doing when he designed the church. And that's part of what he did. I walked through a few things here, and we're going to um, walk through them quickly and mention them to you because I think you're, you're familiar with these concepts. And... Um, and, and then get from there, we'll probably, we'll probably at least cover those so that we don't come back on this part here. But I, I find it beautiful to see how God uniquely designed the body of Christ to defend truth. He didn't just give it to it and equip it to do so. He gave them the truth, entrusted to them a little, bit, a little bit later, not just to hold on to it, but to proclaim it, to proclaim the truth, guard it, and defend it. The first thing I put down, truth is preserved by the congregation. You see a, a whole section here where Paul admonishes the brothers and the body of Christ as a whole. Um, I, I reference the first one. Look at if you see that second paragraph there. It says um, Paul is admonishing the brothers to fulfill their obligation to stand firm and hold to the traditions in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Second, Th- in Th- second Thessalonians, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse fifteen. Walk through all those texts. What is Paul doing in all those texts? He is admonishing the church as a whole to stand firm and to guard. In other words, it's not just a few elite. We have elders. They, they serve their role. We see it here as well. But first and foremost, a congregation has a responsibility to uphold, stand firm for the truth, which is why who is recognized as... That's, that, that's why who becomes... Who, who's a member of the church, who's part of a congregation is important. 
if, if, if anybody is, if you don't have expectations of one who claims Christ and what the testimony looks like, we, when someone wants to join the church here, I understand church membership roles is, is done in a specific way. We don't, have, we, have very, we don't have biblical models for exactly what that looks like. What is obvious in Matthew 18 is that some people are included and some people are excluded uh, from the body. So there's a way of, of saying, yeah, you're part of the body, you're not. You are, you shouldn't be, you need to get out. So there is some understanding of that. Um, but whenever someone here wants to become a member of the church, what do we do? We ask for the testimony, a uh, letter that can be affirmed from someone else if they have that. We read through the testimony. If their testimony is ambiguous, what do we do? We send in someone to say, hey, you know, we need to meet with them. Of course, we're gonna, they're going to have the uh, membership interview in a way to understand, you know, what do you believe? Because once you, you embrace someone in the fold, they now share that same responsibility of holding up the net of truth and holding that truth with you. If you don't agree on the same truth, you have a problem. Now you pull in different directions. You don't have, the, you don't have that, that congruency that is needed. So when, when Paul admonishes, he does that in Thessalonians. He does that with the Galatian believers. He does that with the Corinthian believers. He says what? Guard the truth as one, as, as corporately as the body of Christ. One interesting study that you can, you can do is one that focuses on the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus is actually, of course, they're the recipient of First Timothy. And they're the, they're the you see their admonition in the book of Ephesus, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2 is the first one where he describes, you know, the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. So in Ephesians, or at the church of Ephesus there, then you go to, uh, I think, Acts chapter 20, where he warns the church at Ephesus about the wolves that are going to come and ravage the church. Then you have the admonition in 1 Timothy. Then you have Revelation, where he tells them as well to, uh, he tells the church in, in, in Revelations, um, Revelation chapter 2, he says, how can you not bear, the, he says, is commend, they're committed for how you cannot bear those that are evil and you've tested those who call themselves apostles and not found them to be false. In other words, he's, he's admonishing them for their work in protecting and defending truth. So we see the, the church of Ephesus is really one of, the, one of the primary recipients of that interesting study. You can walk through scripture and, and look at that. The first one is a congregation two, and it was mentioned here in the structure where we have elders. Preserved by elders, uh, the church. If the church is going to fulfill its purpose and advance truth, then it will need godly overseers to lead in that task. Uh, clearly, that's the context we see in 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 First Timothy. Going back to what is the picture of the church? A picture of the church in First Timothy is that of a household. How to conduct yourself in a household, which is when you have elders. One of the first criteria of the elders is what? How to manage your household. Because they're going to be responsible for managing the household of God. So that's part of their, their task. Uh, truth is preserved through the congregation. It's preserved by the elders. They're called on to uh, manage well. They're called on to teach. Obviously, not everyone's called to teach, but they should be able to handle the word. Uh, the qualified. Uh, and so I, I, I put down in the notes just different qualifications that are indicative of their ability to manage the household. So you have a congregation that, at large, Paul tells the brothers, you need to defend the truth. You appoint elders that play that role of uh, guarding, ability to manage a household, uh, qualified, qualified men. They don't have to be. I put down. I put down here as a reminder: elders don't have to be have formal theological training, but they should be trained. Uh, they should be trained. They should be equipped. They should be. They should be prepared. 
Number three, up and down, they should be pre, it's preserved by the church ordinances. Two church ordinances, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. What page am I on here? 17, 18? Okay, Bob, all right. Making sure we're on the same, on the same notes here. So, truth is, what, what are we seeing here? We're seeing things that you know already. All I'm doing is, is, is pointing these things out in light of the admonition that's been given as preserved truth, right? We're, we're, we know these things. We, okay, there's a congregation. We know what we're responsible for. Okay, we got elders. We understand that. We have the church ordinances. But all of these things are designed for what? they designed to preserve and protect and guard truth. Baptism, why? Great commission. Go, baptize. As you baptize, what do you do when you baptize? You recognize, you make a profession of faith, and you do it for the sake of a public declaration before another body. So baptism, and the elders who oversee that, ensure that through baptism, uh, Dever writes down, I put down a note, Dever calls baptism the door which guards the entrance to the church. So when someone gets baptized, we want to hear the testimony. We want someone that's old enough to express themselves. We're not going to baptize, you know, a, a, a seven-year-old. I was baptized as a seven-year-old, or eight, I mean, it was eight, almost eight years old. But, you know, you go to heaven, shake your head this way. Uh, you, don't, you don't go to hell, shake your head that way. And, and that, that's the extent of, <laughs> that, that was the extent. No, we, we, we want, if you're going to come at professional faith, be baptized, and join a body, you need to be able to give that public declaration of faith. And the elders oversee that, the, and baptism guards the entrance to the church. Um, so it is vital in those early foundational stages that a qualified missionary, and here's where the missionary word becomes important. You send a, a missionary to the field. If a missionary is expected to play the role of an elder, he should be qualified as an elder. Not every missionary role requires you to be an elder. So it doesn't mean that you can only have elders as missionaries. Absolutely not. Uh, but if they're expected to play the role of an elder, then they need to be qualified as an elder. You're going to send somebody somewhere, to, they're going to preach and church plant and make disciples, and they're not qualified elders, you've got a problem. And so um, they, th- this, this truth designed here through baptism and then the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper, we're obviously, they're, again, familiar with it. I put down here, while the ordinance of baptism is the gate into the church, the Lord's Supper is what? Designed to keep believers in line with um, in line with and united in the truth. So when you take the Lord's Supper, what do you do? You uh, examine your heart. Uh, you confess. You realign your heart with, with the Word of God and the truth. And, and so baptism and Lord's Supper are, are tools to maintain the purity, uh, truth of the church and protect that. Last one here I have is that of church discipline. And it's a little bit longer, um, but... The church protects truth and guards truth and preserves it by the exercise of church discipline. We, we experienced this with one agency where uh, we're dealing with a missionary who was struggling with a sin problem, a significant sin problem. The church found out about it two years later. Why? Well, the mission agency deemed that they're going to handle it internally. But here's the problem. They, they, took a, they took a sin problem that only the church is designed to handle, and they handled it internally. Why did they handle it internally? I'll talk about this a little bit in the drifting part. Well, they handled it internally because the reality is there's conflict of interest. 
I mean, you don't want to, you know, you don't want a bad name out there and, and make expose sin or whatever it is. So they they handle it internally. What happened? Well, two years later or three years later, that couple blew up, separated, and off the field. They were not the church. They're not designed to do that. They took on a responsibility that was not theirs, and they they did a disservice to the church by not getting involved, getting the church involved in in a a discipline issue that needed to be addressed by the church, not because. The church just wants to hoard their authority, but because we've been uniquely designed to do it. And we've been given the biblical mandate to do it. So the church discipline is, is, is in two ways. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. So we discipline from two things. One, from false teaching and false living. You don't, there's false teaching, of course, which we are there to, to address and correct, right? There's false living, someone living in sin. That uh, someone could be not necessarily doing false teaching, but their life is false living, and they're demonstrating that through through their lives. I have a few stats here I found found interesting in in light of the evangelical world how few evangelical churches are accustomed to church discipline. But it's what maintains if if baptism admits people of faith into the fellowship, the Lord's Supper reminds people of the truth that unites them in Christ. Church discipline removes them from the gathering unrepentant souls. So all those are essential to what? To preserving truth and guarding truth and protecting truth. From false teaching, from false living. Unfortunately, many, uh, many churches don't experience that. Uh, I got a quote here from, from Moeller. It says, it speaks to the fact that church discipline can only be local. There's no such thing as a universal discipline. I'm disciplined from the universal church. The invisible discipline. From the invisible church. But I mean, the internet we're hearing about some of them. Well, so Christ delegated his, his, his divine authority in this, into the church to remove unrepentant members from the body. We go to Matthew 18. We mentioned this, I think, on the first day, interest, when we talked about Peter. Matthew 16, first mention of the church. Matthew 18, the second mention of the church. It's in the context of church discipline. The second time we have a mention of the church, it talks about what? How to remove somebody in the body. What? To maintain truth. One of the, one of the greatest disservices we've done to the, church, to, to the church of Christ is allowing people that were not true believers in the church. And our churches today are, are muddled with professing, nominal believers who don't live Christ. We really don't believe Christ by the way they live, but we have this mass evangelism. Everybody raised their hands and you were good and you get the stamp and we did a great disservice to the church. We've done a great disservice. We thought, oh, it's wonderful. It wasn't wonderful. It's what happened is that instead of, instead of doing due diligence to the gospel for the sake of the thrill of results, whatever it was, we, we've allowed the, this, this mass presence in the church and, and without any, any correction. Discipline is part of maintaining that. Two aspects of it are important. I explain why this is important as a formative discipline, and then we're going we're gonna to end with this. We'll talk about drifting next week. I think I'm, I'm off a little bit, but drifted. I drifted. Indeed. Here's why formative discipline and corrective discipline are important. One, there's formal discipline where an unrepentant professing believer is brought before the church. We've had to do that here. And it's always grievous. We always lament over that. We always grieve over that. We always think, is it, is it, should we do it? Should we make it public? I mean, all these things are very painful. But there's formal discipline that is necessary. Formal discipline is, is, um, is broader in, in scope. I mean, Dever describes preaching, teaching, 
and discipling and the gathering of corporate worship as part of formative discipline. They use that in education. They call formative assessments, you know, this continual assessment. So basically, through the church, what he's describing here is that the correction that's going on in church is not just when you have a, a public discipline. Is that every time truth is taught, your heart is corrected and brought in line with truth. So you're, that, that form of, of continually being, being wow, you know, or being convicted. You, you're, hearing, you're hearing the word, ah, man, that, I should, that, that's convicting. It's the corrective nature of the, of the proclamation of truth. Okay, so now put that back in the context of missions. How do you do missions? Without the church. Being not just the name on the back of a card saying, oh yeah, by the way, we also these people are also behind us. How, how do you do missions without the instrument that, was, that God's divinely ordained to guard, protect, defend, rebuke, fix the truth? You can't and maintain biblical purity, whatever you want to call it. You can't. So when I walk through that, this, this is where, to me, that, I, that parameter locks in place for me. That's, that's where those, those parameters, to me, lock into place. And say, okay, we cannot do missions. Now, there's ministry. We'll, we'll distinguish that a little bit later, what it means to be in ministries versus in missional work and church planning work and teaching and making disciples. We'll, 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 we'll split hairs in some of those to ex- explain what that means for us. But that, for me, is, it locks it where mission fits in. It doesn't mean you can't have an agency fulfill one purpose or another, but they can, you cannot pull the church out of missions and, and put them in the back seat of missions and let someone else run it whenever we've been uniquely given that task and uniquely designed to guard, defend, and protect it and then proclaim it. We'll see it in the next section as well. So I'll leave you with that. Next time we'll, we'll talk about the drifting because we see what happens in – these missional areas specifically. So it gets kind of in the, the missional nature, what happens when these areas drift and the church is sidelined uh, and how missions tends, tends to, to drift. So we'll look at, that, look at that next time. So thank you so much for your time. These notes should last you a couple Sundays, so I won't throw another 40 pages at you next week. I, again, I'm going to try to consider down another 20 pages probably and, and uh, wrap up some of, these, some of these notes for you. But... Thank you for your time. Let's go ahead and close in word of prayer. And I do remember that we're going to have to move these chairs and bring the tables in here, so we'll do that. Father, I think of the words of John Calvin, how there's not a greater honor given to us. What greater honor can we have than here's, here's the, the precious truth of the gospel. And here it is. It's the deposit of truth given to you. Now protect it. Now guard it. Now teach it. Now proclaim it. And Lord, we can't, we can't pass that on to somebody else. What a, what a, we're going to give an account for that, Lord. We can't expect someone else to do what you've designed the church and the body of Christ to do. I thank you, Lord, for that. It's, it's a tremendous privilege, Lord, and, and I pray that we might take that to task. I thank you for the blessing of knowing the gospel, not living in darkness, not living in ignorance. Lord, give us a, a greater love for your truth. Every, every member that's, that's better trained, better tooled, better knowledge, more knowledgeable will have the more skill sets to, to guard and protect the truth. Pray more and more we might grow in truth in that way, Lord. We thank you for our time this evening. What a blessing it has been to, to be together. Uh, 
give us just a blessed week, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.